Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target's red card debit card, you'll save 5% every Target trip on top of everyday low prices in-store and online. Debit red card links from your existing bank account. Visit Target.com slash RedCard to get all the details. Restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. In rock and roll history, very few bands or artists have made a successful rock opera. Almost no one has made two. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. You know who that is, don't you? Who? Yeah, that's right. Who? Yeah, the band that made two rock operas, and almost three. You know who I'm talking about? Who are you talking about? That's right, The Who. The Who from Mongolia? No, London. (laughs) It's true, they made Tommy, and it was a landmark album for them, right? And uh, in 69, and then Pete conceived of another concept album, uh, a futuristic concept album called Lifehouse. And for reasons that we won't get into here, Marcus, that kind of fell apart and turned into Who's Next, and nobody complained, right? What a great album. You look at what they did in that period, and it's pretty amazing. And then in between Who's Next and what was Quadrophenia, which is what we're talking about. Did we mention that we're talking about Quadrophenia? I don't think we mentioned it yet. We were getting there. Oh, well, we're there now. (laughs) It's Quadrophenia (laughs) Sound and Cinema. Episode 39 of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. And guess what? It's brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. They've got the cure for what ails you since 2014. And we thank them for their support of the podcast. All right. So the Who Makes Who's Next out of what is considered even by Pete to be the failed Lifehouse project. He had the vision for it. Politics and business kind of derailed it. So they put out Who's Next. No problem. It's just a major album. The cover is a, an icon in rock and roll, right? But why did he call it a failure when it musically was so solid up and down? Aesthetically, it was fantastic. Are we going down that road? Because no. Who's Next was not Lifehouse. True. All right. That's another road for another day, my friend. All right. The whole story of Who's Next. But they put that out in 71, and it's uh, popular, sells great. And then they start getting this other idea that Pete had had uh, for Quadrophenia. And in his book, Who I Am, uh, Pete says the inspiration for the album came after the death of the Meher Baba, who was really his spiritual guide, right? He was feeling lost and cold. He was feeling really down. And uh, a song that he had written for the Baba, Drowned, 
was the first song that he actually wrote and thought about as part of Quadrophenia, as part of the next project. Kind of ironic, because although great, it's really uh, a deep track or, uh, you know, one of those flavor tracks that fans love more than, like, one of the big hits from that record. He said that after he wrote the song Cut My Hair, which helped him to find Jimmy, the character, the main character, the hero, if you will, of his story that he started to develop, he came to the aid of his friend Eric Clapton because Clapton had been really bad off and uh, it, was, it was the heroine at that time. And some of his other friends uh, decided to put together this benefit called the Rainbow Concert, a very legendary show, January of 73. And that kind of got Clapton working and out of the house in, uh, I guess you'd say in a rock and roll way, it was almost like an intervention. Mm-hmm. Sort of a guitar intervention. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right, because you made them use the guitar, and I think we all know that plenty of heroin users managed to use their guitar. However, um, it, it worked. Whatever they, they thought it was going to be, it worked. Most of the times, as we've seen with heroin, it takes a long time, or the result is really, really bad. Or it can just get you like that, yep. too. So. Um, so after the Rainbow concert, Pete is settled in at home and he's writing. And, you know, I can only picture his house in 73. This is the middle of all this, right? Um, he had already started ideas for Quadrophenia, but he gets home and he starts writing and developing the story of Jimmy, who he determined was quadrophrenic, not schizophrenic. So all of a sudden you have quadrophrenia, quadrophrenia, and it's a half step, right, to Quadrophenia. That seems to be the sound version of what's going on in his head or their heads. When we get to the movie part, because we're doing sound and cinema, I think you'll find that that's very true because a lot of the way they used Quadrophenia's music uh, in the movie, uh, it was used to accent what was going on in the heads and and in the words of the, uh, the actors on the screen. It's interesting that Pete is the primary songwriter the way at the level that he is and that the band didn't have more involvement in the songs or in these pieces and the fact that he is able mm-hmm. to go home and write this story via music is just a genius in a way. I never fully grasped how all that worked until I read the book, Who I Am. I need and, to and read I, that well, book. Well, I got it here. I'll, I'll, I'll send it home with you today. And it's where some of my notes came from on this. He decided that he was going to do the album in quadraphonic sound, which was becoming a thing back there in the in the early 70s for a minute. Okay. Was that like pre-Dolby excitement? I don't even know what the hell that is. Like, you know how everybody got excited about Dolby oh, sound I, I, and all that? Oh, doubly. Doubly. Oh. It's doubly. I understand what you mean. I didn't know there was a... I thought you said there was a feature called Dolby Excitement. I'm like, yeah, I experienced some of that, but no. (laughs) No, it was around the same time that Dolby started to kick in, especially on your cassette deck in your car if you had Dolby. From the movies. So, it's funny because he eventually dropped the quadraphonic idea as Quadrophenia started to move forward. Uh, He talked a lot about... um, you know, the, the way that these things all came together. He said the sessions were a joyful experience enhanced by his taking a speedboat down the Thames to sessions in Battersea every day. So he would get on the boat at the house, little speedboat, ride down the river, get off the boat, walk up to the studio, go to work. So he went from 
One boat dock on the Thames somewhere else by his house. Yeah, his into flat, town. Into town. Yep. And then he would get off his boat and walk to the Kind of created the vibe that was really great because, you know, you're, a lot of this is about the water, the sea, the yeah. sounds of the well, sea and water. Well, it opens with I am the sea. And uh, he also spoke warmly about uh, Entwistle's horn work on the album. A lot of it, the sounds that you hear are the ox. So. Um, the music's beautiful. When the band got on the same page about all this and how they were going to do it, they decided that energetic musical rage was the decided mood for the band for these sessions. But it's not all energetic rage all the way through, which is kind of wild if you think about it. Listen to some of the quieter parts and how they're actually approached, and I, I feel what he's saying there. You know, okay. I hear what he's saying there. Townsend, thinking he had unlimited time, didn't think it was going to come out for a while, but then something happened. And you want me to tell you what it is? Of course. I know please. you do. Well, they, they were off to a great start there by early September, having had a productive summer. And then Pete was shocked to read somewhere that the album was due for release on October 13th. And they had a tour starting in September. So when did he find this out? By reading it in the papers. So his manager never told him? Turns out it had been the guys from Track Records. They were on Track Records uh, with their sub-label type contract that they had. Their team which became increasingly at odds with, by the way. Uh, they made the decision on the October release so to not miss the Christmas buying season, plain and simple. That's what he said in his book. Well, it makes sense. It was a double album, so it's a perfect Christmas gift. But because they decided to do it doesn't mean that the artist is, is ready and that the album is ready. What if he wasn't? What if, what if they had a rush to the finish? And, and he did. He did nine days. He did all the mixing in nine days under that pressure. And I think it's a miracle that it came out so well. So the guys find out, and they're, they're not happy, okay? In the ensuing chaos, Roger flips out. Pete protested and came at him with a guitar, and Daltrey knocked him out cold. What? Yes! So these guys got into a brawl? They were exhausted. Uh. And it fueled the frustration. And then they tell him, hey, we got to put the album out October 13th. That's what's going on. And it really caused things to change. The release was made, though. Uh, the Quadraphonic was scrapped partially because of that. They weren't going to get it there. And the reviews were surprisingly blah at the beginning. Uh, it did wash away some of Pete's feelings about the ill-fated Lifehouse rock opera. What failed with Lifehouse and became Who's Next, he kind of overcame that hurdle and he felt it. I think he felt the pressure to, to overcome that. Quadrophenia came to him. It was an inspiration and continues to be one of the most amazing uh, albums ever made in the 70s because of its production chops. It was just over the top, layered beyond layers. Mm -hmm. And today it seems kind of simple or relatively easy to conceive of and do. Yeah, because of digital, everything doesn't mean that you can write music at that level. It's easy to layer music. That's true. But to write the songs that they wrote that tell a story in the level and depth and layering musically that they tell that story. I don't know. I mean, today's rock seems to be a lot more me-oriented and dealing with personal demons and those types of things. A versus, lot of it. Some of it. Versus a lot of the stories. You do get bands who tell stories, but do they tell stories for the entire album? Like, does the whole album... Contain a story. Every now and then, but not there aren't uh, novellas or operettas or operas written as often. And this was massive. And 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 you got to look at. You mentioned the quality of the songs, and they open it up with 
the place where all the, the the madness happens in the story, right? I am the sea. It's it's the t- the ties that the characters, uh, Doctor Jimmy, and all the other characters oh, yeah. that come into place, uh, they're tied to the sea. He starts to establish the idea of the quadraphrenic main character Jimmy in songs like "The Real Me," and the feel of the album comes out on the instrumental uh, "Quadrophenia." And then the song he wrote with Daltrey that kind of really kicked it into gear uh, towards becoming Quadrophenia, uh, another song that's a fan fave there on side one of the album, uh, Cut My Hair. And and then the punk and the Godfather. I love that song. I was listening ah. to that. I was listening. I listened to these first five on the way up, and it's just such a great song, and it really moves the story forward. It takes it to the next level. I never realized this, but... Uh, because I have the American version, the punk meets the Godfather is actually the title on the American releases, and the punk and the Godfather was in the UK. And do you, you know why they did that? I have no idea. Why would they do that? I've seen that in a lot of the '80s British and '70s rock and roll stuff that came over from Britain, where they either have different cover artwork, different album names, or different song sure. names, or all three. And is it have to do with decency standards in America versus the rest of the world? Here's an idea. Because the Godfather movies had just come out, right? Mm-hmm. Did it have something to do with the punk meets the Godfather being cooler than punk and the Godfather? I don't know. Maybe. 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 So that's side one. And I think most people would be happy to call that a side one of any album. But it's really just the beginning <laughs> of the epic. <laughs> As they get into side two, they start to introduce more characters to the story of Jimmy, and um, things start to happen. And you know what we're talking about is uh, a snapshot in time, 1964 in England. The mods were these new kids that had access and Vespas and a little bit of spending cash and time and a lot of energy coming from the music that they uh, that they called their own. They were kind of like the suburban white punks of the 60s in a lot of way. Was this like a West Side Story type of deal? I guess there's an element of that, but it really was its own story because the whole conflict is between two different eras of British Utes. Yeah. You know, you got the the rockers, the the descendants of the Teddy Boys, and then you got these mods who have all new ethics and different ideas that kind of are the seed, one of the seeds of the punk ethos, I think. When you look at the movie and you look at the way that it's shows the, the the energy and the anger the group mentality uh in the gang scenes and in the riding scenes uh it's pretty extraordinary and you know jimmy's trying to find the one person that he is because he's got all these different voices in his head and he's fighting with his dad and he's he's all this crazy stuff is going on you know and um and it's around to the song that uh, daltrey wrote with the ox is it in my head well is it in my head? Yeah, well, of course it is. Everything's in his head. But the way it's coming out in real life is conflictatory. It's extreme. And he's really out of control because he can't keep it focused on one of his personalities. How is an author who maybe doesn't have multiple personalities able to write about a character with multiple personalities so effectively? Research which got Townsend in trouble at times when the internet was available. <laughs> yeah. But you also draw from what you know, and uh, that would be an, a qu- great question to, t- to ask Pete, um, like where the sources of the characters. But the character eventually, he's had it, 
And it gets to the end of side two with I've Had Enough, which uh, Daltrey and Pete wrote together. Could Jimmy be the four members of The Who as one character? Bongosophical, my dear Marcus. Think about it. They're four different characters, all different kinds of rage, all different kinds of uh, excess, all different kinds of artistry, but all still pretty chaotic in a lot of ways. Something to ponder while we pour us a cold one and get with our friends from Crook and I Brewery who sponsor us here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. It's episode 39, Quadrophenia, Sound and Cinema. Mmm, come on back for some more. I know when I'm thirsty, I head to the heart of Hatboro and go see my friends at Crooked Eye Brewery. I want to thank Paul, Paul, and the whole gang for their support for our podcast. It's been great. Now, when you want to taste the freshest, most creative brews in the Bucksmont, you go to Crooked Eye at York Road in Montgomery right there in the heart of Hatboro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, the Crooked Eye crew makes every single night fun. Hey, and you can keep up with the live entertainment on the brewery's Facebook page. That's the best way to know what's happening there, including their free Tuesday night's Blues Jam, which has taken off. The Home Brewers Club and my partner in crime, Ray's Vinyl Nights, which are the third Wednesday of the month. That's every when the month. Home Brewers meet. And live music all the time, including the Crooked Eye Band. There's always good fun to be had. And a new friend to be made at Crooked Eye. And we want to thank them, as always, for their support of what we do on this crazy, imbalanced podcast. When you need a fresh, tasty brew, head to Hatboro and make it Crooked Eye. Ray and Marcus back on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. You remember the old days when if you wanted to hear more music on an album, you had to flip it over? Yes. <laughs> well, that's what we did there. You know, side one, side two. And then with Quadrophenia, double albums were great because you would get side three and four, too. When did double albums really kick in be, and become big? The first one, or I guess the earliest one I remember, is the Beatles' White Album. Well, I can think of one other one that was a double album back around then, and it was the first Chicago Transit Authority album. Really? And Chicago actually helped to make the double album a thing by doing double albums for their first, what, three records? Were all double albums? Four? I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Is that when they were more jazzy and... It's the beginning when Terry yeah. Kath was alive. Okay. Yeah. yeah, We'll talk about that another time. Yeah, in another episode. So we flip it over, and one of the greatest rock songs of all time starts off side three. Out of my brain on the train. All about life in the work-a-day world. Getting on the train, getting where you got to go, right? You know, hit punch the clock, get home. Well, the mods weren't having that, man. They were rebelling. Why should I And then you had Sea and Sand, which is one of the great feel songs of Quadrophenia. Uh, you see how much Daltrey's involved in the writing on this, uh, especially there on side three. Uh, working uh, with uh, Pete on the whole song, Sea and Sand, uh, Drowned, he wrote, which is a song from, uh, from the Meher Baba uh, tribute. And then Bell Boy. With Keith Moon. That's the end of side three, and it's just one of those great quirky songs from the Who's Songbook. Kind of like uh, Boris the Spider uh, from uh, Meaty Beaty Big and Bouncy. And then you get into what's the uh, finale, if you will. Um, 
the, the, of the story with uh, Dr. Jimmy. of Is It Me, um, The Rock, which is one of the great instrumentals, and then the epic, Love, Rain, or Me. What a perfect way to end it. And an, an album that, in some aspects, you could consider perfect just on its own merits. It's one of the few perfect or close to perfect albums. Now, I'm sure if anybody who worked on the album got you on the phone, they would say, no, this was wrong, and this didn't work out the way we wanted. But to a young person at the time, a kid, mm-hmm. hearing Quadrophenia, I thought it, the whole album was as close to rock perfection as you were ever going to hear. Now, do you remember when the hype came out for Quadrophenia, like when the hype started for Quadrophenia, when they started pushing it, when it started getting advertising, when they started talking about it? No. Do you remember when it came out in no. October of that year? No, I remember hearing songs on the radio and going, oh, the new one from The Who. And then you started to learn about Quadrophenia, that it was a concept album, different but similar to the way Tommy was. Everybody understood the concept of a rock opera because of Tommy. So it wasn't until I heard songs on the radio, and what are we, the ones we just ran past all of them, uh, Love, Rain, or Me, Dr. Jimmy, All 515, these songs and more are the songs that established Quadrophenia with the Who fans right away oh, and, and, and fueled what became... Uh, uh, one of their biggest albums. And, you know, it's funny you brought up uh, 515 the way you did because working in rock radio, that is one of the cuts that I get calls about from The Who more than any other. Forever, man. Forever. Like, seriously, the hardcore Who fans all want to hear 515 when we can throw it in. When we do the block party weekends, Mm -hmm. 515 is one of the most common requested tunes. So it's one of the biggest albums of the year. Uh, It's Peak Position... Um, was number two on the U.S. and U.K. charts. That's really great for a double album because numbers count twice because you're selling two discs. Uh, You had singles that got onto the chart, uh, most notably 515 on the U.K. singles chart, uh, which we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the the big picture, it certified platinum in the U.S., and that that means only uh, a million copies. Um, you know, gold in UK, uh, gold in France and platinum in Canada with those numbers are much lower. The thresholds are much lower. It's the impact that they made with the songs, with those million albums that spread the legend that became Quadrophenia. With the singles not doing as well on the charts as they, as maybe the band would have liked, the label would have liked. How did it continue to get as much airplay as it did? I mean, besides the fact that it's a great album, I guess radio was a lot more free still back then, and I guess there was a lot more... uh... And a million albums, let alone a million doubles, was a lot harder to reach back in 1973 and 74. The the numbers that the baby boomers and beyond would create for the music industry in the 80s and 90s as far as sheer numbers of people that are buying records would grow exponentially. Absolutely. At that time, I think that was pretty incredible. And other albums would go on to, this is the initial sales. 
other albums would go on to raise the bar, and mm-hmm. especially in, with double albums. But we're talking about an original double album, and not unlike Tommy. So when, yeah. sometime, when we get into the Who episode, let's talk about yep. this a lot more. Definitely, because we definitely have to do a full Who break to overview as well as a Who family tree. Well, we call this episode Quadrophenia Sound and Cinema, so we should talk a little bit about the movie, uh, the Quadrophenia movie, which came out a few years later in uh, 1979. It was a different approach than the Who had taken to the Tommy movie, which they liked. They didn't like the way they came off or the way everything came off with them in the movie, so they decided they did not want to be in Quadrophenia. So they hired Frank, uh, the the director for the whole uh, thing, Frank Rodham. He hires all these amazing people who ended up making and being part of influential movies over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And really, he came from documentary film, film work, brought some people in from that, and had total creative freedom in the way he wanted to set this thing up. So they did a script. Jimmy's the central character. You know, uh, they brought in a lot of really hot, young British actors to be part of the cast. And one very hot, young British musician as well, Sting. That's right. It's uh, right in that little crevice. I was uh, watching the documentary, and they say it was right before he recorded the first police record is when they recruited him. Um, the story is pretty funny. You got a minute? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Do it. Someone in the casting director's office said, hey, there's this guy who cleans my house. He's an unemployed teacher in a rock band. Now, they hadn't made the first police record yet. Whoa. That was him. So um, Sting starred as Ace Face. He was the bellboy. And uh, there's a funny scene when after the riots when they all go to court. When the judge hands down the sentence, the fine... Sting just turns and says, hey, can I pay it right now? And everybody laughs. It's a good laugh in the courtroom scene. I remember Sting's acting from Dune. I don't remember him in Quadrophenia. It was pretty early, and there were a lot of other early appearances on films from actors and actresses who would go on. Phil Daniels has had a great career. He was somewhat established um, when they started making the movie, and there were a lot of concerns. And, and you know, I didn't even think about this. You're about to set loose 40 young kids, mostly inexperienced actors, with Vespas to travel and film them all over this part of England. No, it's they did. They were concerned. Frank actually talked to them all about, I need you guys to come together, and I need you to teach you how to do this and how to ride Vespas and how to be safe and how to interact with the cameras. So they spent like 30 days, and uh, Phil Daniels, the guy who plays Jimmy, said they felt, by the end of that, they felt like a gang. So it added to the chemistry, and I don't know that they were necessarily thinking about that. They never said that that was part of their plan, but that's what happened. So all the people who were in the gang, and that includes young Ray Winstone. You may know him. He's a hell of an actor who's uh, well-established now. He's Kevin. And these guys all come together. That's kind of the backbone of how the movie became so good, I guess. Kind of got a Roman holiday vibe with the Vespas as well. Well, one of the things that was going well for the youth of those days in the UK was they did have a little money. Um, A lot of the, the mods were spending it on drugs, but a lot of the kids had Vespas because they were inexpensive and cheap to run. They, they, they were easy to keep up. And so they would, take their black beauties and get on their Vespas and ride to places like Brighton, 
which is one of the central scenes in Quadrophenia. I remember watching it and thinking that this is what a riot would really look like, the brutality of it, the way things were thrown and broken, and it actually created a feeling of angst about watching it during it, even though you know you're at the movies. And anytime I've seen it on video, I still get that same feeling of what it must have been like to be in the middle of a riot like that, you know? Sounds kind of like, yeah, it made you feel a little uncomfortable. They asked them about this, and they said the script was based somewhat on real events. They created all the the personal stuff in the scene where Jimmy gets it on with, uh, what's her name, the uh, actress Leslie Ash as Steph. She takes his virginity in the middle of the riot, and, and in the documentary they explain how they shot that scene, which is kind of iconic. They call it the shag wall. It's the wall just outside where the scene was shot when they come running down the alley, and it's become a bit of a shrine, and they show all the little... Like Nelson Shag here, you know, mm-hmm. it's all all scribbled on the wall, and so those real events and uh, the words of the judge that we referenced earlier yes. are used almost verbatim in the movie. Really, insofar as the law gives us power, this court will not fail to use the prescribed penalties. It may perhaps discourage you and others of your kidney who are infected with this vicious virus that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, if you don't mind. Haven't <laughs> got a pen, have you, Ronald? It's interesting that Leslie takes his virginity because even at that time, that was still very taboo. It's kind of interesting that they're writing about the woman taking, or the girl taking the boy's virginity yeah. because it was so macho for the guy to take her virginity, the lady or the gal's virginity, and maybe a precursor to the hippie scene in the mid to late 60s where everybody just looked at each other and said, hey, I like the way you look. Let's have sex. Okay. One of the side notes I found very interesting in reading up about Quadrophenia is that they originally thought about putting Johnny Rot, Johnny Lydon, Johnny Rotten. In yeah, well, the, he was still Lydon then. Yeah, right? he was still Lydon then in the role of the main character Jimmy. Wow, uh, I never knew. Think, I never knew. Really knew that. But think about it. It makes sense because of the spastic quirkiness that Johnny Lydon had. So. Yeah. I guess he was, I mean, he was, he was probably like that. That's why the guys from the pistols liked him so much that when they met, when they met him, it yep. was like, oh yeah, this guy's just right for us. But, He's totally And I perfect. can see why they, why they would, somebody would think of him as a, as a possible candidate to be in the cast too. All right. Well, that's kind of the, the whole story there with, uh, with the cinema. I mean. Not completely at all. There's a movie about one of the songs. Is that where we're going? Well, was it about the song? I think it was a movie that they it decided was, to call Love. Oh, no, they didn't even use Love, right? It was just Rain, Rain Over Me. Me. And a 2007 movie. Don Cheadle, Adam Sandler. Right. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's in that one, too. Yeah. So it's a, that's a pretty cool movie. But, uh, it's a really good movie. I, I guess they, they felt that the music had the theme was uh, appropriate. And one of our favorites... Uh, did the re-record Pearl Jam? Yeah, baby, that's what they I'm do a beautiful about. cover. When we talk about covers, a lot of times covers that stand out to us are covers that maybe are a little different that the artist makes his own, as in all along the Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. But yes, Pearl Jam just crushes it true to form in a dirty rock and roll way that you still feel 
that energy, and you still get those. At least I still get the goosebumps when I hear hear, hear Pearl Jam do it and the Who, and I think they're both just fantastic. You feel it. What they didn't try to do was change it or do their own thing with it. They took it and they made it the best they could with their five guys and mm-hmm. or six probably. But you never know. <laughs> but the thing is. And I think that they made uh, a version of it that endures because it's become one of the favorites of the fans when they play it live. Over the years, it's just, you know, it's been taken on a life of its own with Pearl Jam. In addition to, of course, the legendary Who version. Oh, absolutely. But you're right. The Pearl Jam, as straight as it is to the original, just gives you those goosebumps and the feels that rock and roll and music should. Hey, man, I have a quick update from the uh, Chris Schwartz interview. What's that? Believe it or not, I know it was just uh, the previous episodes, but um, I looked it up because we were talking about, there was a little gray area when we were talking to Chris about Steve Wimwood and his tenure at Island Records. Not only was he signed as a solo artist, but he goes all the way back through the traffic days. That When he signed traffic, when he's talking about Steve Wimwood signing Steve Wimwood, it was traffic that... Uh, really helped to establish him as as a rock label, uh, Island Records as a rock label, uh, in through the 60s into the 70s. And Winwood stayed with him after that until he left to go to Virgin uh, a few years later as a solo artist. But that's what we were referencing last week. Was it last week or the week before? One of the episodes with Chris Schwartz, uh, we were talking about uh, Chris Blackwell and Island Records. I can't remember if it was part one or part two. They all blended together on me, man. It was so much fun, that episode. Oh, it was part two because it was the... um, That's right. It was when we were talking about uh, GoldenEye and and that whole segment, which was really fun as well. Which was really fucking cool. But that's so, you know, and people are probably saying, yeah, traffic was on Island. But uh, I went back and their, their albums are all attributed to Island, but they were distributed by... Uh, United Artists at one time. I know some of my traffic singles that I have, my promo singles, and even mm. some of the commercial ones are on a United Artists label. So there's always that confusing thing. It's a concept that we talk about all the time. We were talking about it with different territories uh, earlier in this episode. Pretty excited about this episode. I love Quadrophenia personally. I still listen to it all the time. I have a couple different bootlegs of The Who performing it, and it, it is just one of those great rock albums of all time. Are you happy with the uh, quality of the bootlegs and the sound? Because some of the Zeppelin, some. some of the Zeppelin bootlegs I've heard over the years have been a little sloppy and and that. But the Who just—it's well, a whole different animal. Well, you know different. what they do. Some of them, you know, the older ones are different. But what they've done is they've taken control and they say, "Hey, it, they did a thing, and I have a couple of these. Uh, you want to get tonight's show? Just sign up for it over here at this the little." booth at the show and then we'll mail it to you and like in a week or two later the who concerts came in quality that it, i've rarely heard on a bootleg version so oh, wow. people do that and artists do that i suggest that if you really want the show you're going to and i collect those mm-hmm. uh it's uh, definitely one of those things to to look into how do you can do it now you can do a lot of it on the web website mm-hmm. and without cds uh, you can just have it downloaded right onto your device and carry it around with you if you want. So. Pearl Jam's been doing the CD oh, thing yeah. of their live shows for years, sure. and that's such a smart way to take control of there it. There was so much fighting over that stuff, over who could get what and how mm-hmm. people could control stuff. I understand that qual- recording quality wasn't always the best, but it's gotten much better. And I'm just glad to see art- artists taking ownership of that part of their life because live music is really, in my mind, uh, is what it's all about. Can you yeah. do it live? If you can't do it live, how do you do it recorded? Very carefully. 
<laughs> All right, that's going to do it, partner. Hey, don't forget to check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter. We finally got the RY from Santa. Yeah, it's, Santa's been good to us. It's it at imbalance histo <laughs> until Twitter gives us the RY. They will. Oh, yeah, Facebook as well. We're at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hey, don't forget, you can also find us uh, on email. It's in, it's real easy. It's imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. And that's what we do here at the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Thanks to Crook and I and Hapro. Uh, oh, by the way, I mentioned uh, uh, them earlier, but I didn't mention that now my vinyl night is the third Wednesday of every month all through 2020. That's fantastic. Third Wednesday of every month, go spend vinyl with Ray Coob at the Crooked Eye. Have a brew. That's going to do it for this episode, number 39, The Who's Quadrophenia Sound and Cinema. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time right here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens. We're heading into 2020, and it's never been easier to hear music. Old, new, local, international. But has it ever been harder to make sense of popular music? Is this golden age of ubiquity producing great new music? How long will our Uber access to everything ever recorded last? How did the 20th century produce so much great popular music? Is there any chance the 21st century will match it? I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'm obsessed with trying to figure out what the heck happened with popular music in the last 170 years and where we might be headed. Join me as I talk to some of the best music historians on earth, people like Ed Ward, Robert Christgau, Stanley Booth, Ted Joya, Elijah Wald, Susan Whitehall, and Peter Doggett, to get the history, the theory, and try to figure out how popular music happens on the Let It Roll podcast. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.